is Russia getting desperate over Ukraine? Where could that lead and what should the U.S. do? Here at home, what in the world did PayPal think it was doing when it announced financial penalties for its users who went public with political opinions that PayPal didn't like? And what did Vice President Kamala Harris mean when she said that disaster relief after Hurricane Ian should be allocated according to principles of racial equity? We will discuss these issues and so much more on today's episode of Independent Outlook. Hello, everybody. I'm Graham Walker, coming to you today from the Independent Institute in Oakland, California, right across the bay from San Francisco. We, are, we try and bring you an independent take on the issues of our day. And as always, I am joined by my colleague and friend, Williamson Evers, who is the Senior Fellow here and Director of our Center on Educational Excellence. Hello, Bill Evers. Hello, Graham. Great to see you. And also, so happy that we're joined today again by our colleague, Ivan Elon. Ivan Elon is a Senior Fellow here at the Independent Institute, also Director of our Center on Peace and Liberty. Uh, uh, Ivan Elon is the author of a number of books, uh, among them War and the Rogue Presidency, highly relevant for today's issues, a book called Eleven Presidents. Uh, I like this one, especially uh, Ivan, Recarving Rushmore, Ranking the Presidents on Peace, Prosperity and Liberty, a perennial favorite. You may have seen Ivan on TV. Uh, he's been on ABC World News Tonight, uh, CNN, you may have read him in, in USA Today and elsewhere. Welcome to Ivan Eland. Thanks. So great to have you. So, Ivan, um, somebody, who knows who, dropped explosives on the vehicle bridge connecting Russia and Crimea, and this triggered a massive and apparently escalating indiscriminate series of attacks by Russia throughout Ukraine. Um, what should we make of all this? Uh, first of all, uh, why hasn't Ukraine claimed credit for the explosion on the bridge? It was a pretty important strategic victory blocking off supply lines. They didn't really claim credit, did they? No, they haven't. And I probably, it's probably because they don't want to uh, poke the beast any more than ever they've already done. They enjoy poking and mocking the beast, but I think they're, they're you know, if they, uh, um, they're too blatant. I think, I think they might as well just take credit for it since it's obvious that they did it. But, uh, you know, diplomats take over or whatever and they, they seem to think they get some advantage by not admitting it. But because, uh, you know, there are there is some civilian traffic that goes across the bridge. Uh, so they don't want to be labeled as a, they may they may be looking to uh, not be charged for war crimes or something, although it's a military tar target because military the Russia is resupplying uh, the forces in southern Ukraine uh, across <clears> this bridge. So uh, it would be a collateral a hit on any civilians that were on the bridge. So there's really, I don't think anything, any real reason for them not to do that. But, but for some reason they're not, they're not claiming it. But anyway, they the retaliate. They're, they're getting punished uh, as if they had done it, right? Yes, right. They're getting all the negative. Uh, yes. Then <laughs> also, Russia. That's all. That's all Russia has now is just wailing away on civilian targets because they don't really have their their militaries in disarray. Uh, it hasn't broken yet, but it's uh, in disarray at this point. Mm -hmm. Also, so Bill, the you were going to comment. Arrest, yes, the Russian uh, secret police, the F S FSB, has arrested eight people, five for the truck, what they're saying is a truck bombing. There's some dispute about actually how the bridge was blown up, whether it might have been a missile or some something triggered from 
a ship passing nearby below and uh, all sorts of speculative things. But anyway, the Russians are saying it was a truck bomb, which is <clears throat> a little confusing since it seems like it blew up in two different places and so forth. But anyway, that's what they're saying. And they and five of the people arrested were Russians. Now, there may have been casualties in the bombing. In other words, if it was a truck bomb, the bombers or the delivery people may have been blown up. But anyway, that's what the Russians are saying, I think. Uh, so it seems like a, a massive... The, the Nord Stream. We have also mysteries connected. Well, I think the, the Nord, Nord Stream, Stream uh, the Nord Stream pipeline is a bit different. Uh, nobody yeah. really knows for sure who did that, but it's very interesting that the U.S. Uh, took a long time to chastise the uh, Ukrainians for um, assassinating, uh, apparently by mistake, the, the uh, nationalist Russian's daughter, uh, but they did so right. after the Nord Stream bombing. So it could have been that the Ukrainians did the Nord Stream bombing uh, too to cut the uh, European dependence on Russian oil. But it's also possible the Russians did it themselves. That's a little more murkier, I would say. And, certainly and, the pictures and, that they certainly the pictures of the bridge they had the explosion seemed to be if if they had blown it under the bridge, <clears> you wouldn't have seen as much fire. Uh, they although right. they could have done the up below the bridge and above the bridge at the same time, but there was certainly an, a right. charge on top of the bridge because the explosion was uh, you could see it very well on the camera. I might mention that so Ivan Carlson and the former the former foreign minister of Poland have both suggested that the United States Secret Services blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. So, and of course, Biden did say. Uh, some months ago, that if Russia attacks, the Nord Stream pipeline will be stopped. Um, I, I'm leaning with the people, the dominant belief that Russia did it, possibly just to show that they could disrupt foreign, to show they have a multi-directional form of warfare that they're using to threaten even the pipeline between Scandinavia and Poland and just in, in general, bedevil Europe, but it could have been a number of players. Yeah, I I think it's it's hard to say, but it's it certainly is. Uh, you know, it's going to take a long time to fix. So they're going to have a you know the the, the supplies are going to be even. It wasn't really. It's symbolic because it wasn't really. Um, the the Nord Stream two is not ready yet, and the Nord Stream one was basically shut down anyway. So I'm not sure it's going to affect the the, the gas market in, in reality in Europe. So Ivan, you're you're the strategic expert on these matters in some ways. Um, it would seem as the uh, the Russians sort of flail in response to the the attack on the bridge, um, they are striking out ferociously and yet unable to. Or hold on to or, or recover or uh, keep the territory that they, they previously had gotten. The Ukrainians seem to be gaining on the ground. Um, a lot of people are arguing that this is the moment for the West generally and the United States in particular to double down on its support of and provision of weaponry for the Ukrainians to drive the Russians uh, back and finally put them in their place. Um, is that the right strategy, Ivan? Well, I don't know if it's the right strategy, but I think that's what's going to happen because the Biden is under so much and the uh, other uh, 
NATO countries are, you know, when you're winning, you naturally throw more money into the pot, right? And you may not and ultimately win, <laughs> but, you're cert- but you're certainly winning at the time. So you throw a lot of resources. And now, of course, you know, there is some trepidation about Putin using a tactical nuclear weapon on the battlefield. You know, that's a battlefield weapon. It's smaller than the big strategic weapons that would fly over in any sort of, you know, nuclear M- Armageddon. But even that is very potent uh, as far as, you know, uh, weapons go. But that, there's really not much military advantage for him to do that on the battlefield at this point. And uh, it's more of a shock factor, because if, if he does one and that doesn't stop, the U- it's not going to stop the Ukrainians, then he's going to have to use more. And, you know, he's going to, he's that, that would probably trigger a NATO conventional attack right there. Um, so there's danger of escalation. And there's also a danger that uh, these air defense systems that they're now uh, sending, and they were sending them these Stinger handheld uh, uh you know, there are little tube pipes that you put on your shoulder. We've got one guy can fire them. But, and they're effective at a, for low flying aircraft, but they're now sending them, uh, you know, Iris T from Germany and the, uh, the, 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 the new system that the U.S. has. And, and the danger for, of course, it was at the same danger that we faced uh, during World War II before we were, you know, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. People were saying, well, you know, we've been given all this material to the Soviets and the British who are under attack from, you know, Hitler. But now we've got a war. So then it becomes, do we use our our stocks to give them these sophisticated air defense systems that can impair your your ability to fight? Although they were in much better shape than we were, you know, in Pearl Harbor. But that's a question. You know, how much do you give Ukraine and deplete your own Mm -hmm. stocks? Well, Ivan, so I um, wonder, Ivan, if I wonder, Ivan, if you saw Tom Friedman's column in the New York Times, yes, uh, where he says mm-hmm. that yes, the U.S. is at war now with China and Russia simultaneously. And yes, and I think that's a bit. That's a if you pull back and look at the bigger picture, you don't really want that. You know, remember Kissinger in the uh, early '70s was very shrewd in opening to China so he could use it as a lever against the Soviet Union. And of course, he had got detente with the Soviet Union arms control agreements because the Soviets said, hey, don't let us, uh, don't overlook us for this detente. We want it. Mao gets it. We want it too. And so he drove a wedge between the communist powers at the time. And that that's what I advocated up until the invasion, because I thought, you know, geostrategically, it was, we should have probably made nice with Putin before he did this. And I think it's the, the underlying problem here is it's not all Putin's fault. I'm not certainly excusing what he's doing, invading another country and then rather brutally uh, killing civilians. I'm not uh, in any way excusing that. But I think we have to look at, um, we always tend to forget the st- stuff that uh, our side does that might make the other side a little nervous and uh, expanding NATO since the time of Clinton uh, through, um, you know, right up to Biden's term when he reiterated our desire to take Ukraine into NATO, which George W. Bush had really started in 2008, which was a major blunder. Uh, but then Biden recently uh, redoubled it. Right. 
I think that had over long term, it, it's had an effect on not only humiliating Putin, who's a nationalist, but it, in fact, getting Putin to power in the first place, because they might not have uh, brought Putin to that, that nationalism <clears throat> to, pow to power if NATO had not been pushing mm -hmm. east. So I think uh, it's possible to hold two thoughts in, in, in your mind at the same time. One is that we probably shouldn't have expanded NATO right up to Russia's borders, especially through Poland. Poland and Ukraine are the, uh, the invasion route into Russia. And Russia has been invaded uh, many times by the Swedes, by the uh, Pol Poles, by, by the French, Napoleon, and two times by the Germans. The last one killing 25 million Russians and trashing Western Russia in the greatest uh, mortal combat in the history of the world during World War II. So, you know, Russia has a very poor security from the West, unlike our we have the advantage here that have great intrinsic security with two oceans, uh, weak neighbors and friendly neighbors. And then we have a very potent nuclear arsenal as well, but the Russians aren't so gifted geographically. So they're gonna have legitimate security interests. And I think we've been really abysmal in you know, <clears throat> that, approaching it that way. Um, one thing I think both of you could comment on is, uh, if I'm looking at the situation right now, you know, in simple terms, it would seem the argument might be that if if the U.S. and the Western forces just keep rearming Ukraine uh, to the max as far as they can can go, and uh, Ukraine holds territory and takes back more and so forth, that Putin and those around him they'll finally be forced to admit that Ukraine really doesn't mean that much to them after all, and they can relinquish it. Well, uh, is that a realistic Ukraine... expectation? No, probably not. A lot of them are, are escaping the country. <laughs> Uh, your answer is helpful. Um, specifically, I think you confirm my suspicion that it would probably be a mistake to say the Russians will finally be forced to admit that Ukraine doesn't mean that much to them. That sounds unlikely. It's unlikely. Uh, I think everything that Ivan has said makes a lot of sense. The, the Russians, you know, if you, if you poll elite opinion in Russia, we have such polls, uh, you can see that opinion thinks that Ukraine has to be either neutrally pro, pro or accommodating to Russia or part of Russia. And that's not going to change. I mean, even if the Russians get totally whipped militarily, future Russian governments, whether they're Putin or somebody else, are still going to have this attitude. And this is what the realist analysis that Ivan was stressing is that, you know, it's, it's sort of inserted into the underbelly of the country of Ukraine is inserted into the underbelly of Russia. So they're going to be worried about it. Um, I so, wanted to point out you know, uh, yes, that yes. Uh, I wanted to point out that uh, Bill Evers has provided quite a background compilation of information on the subject. I'm just sharing quickly the screen uh, from our website, independent.org. You can go to recommended readings. Can you tell us briefly what people can find here, Bill, if they go to this reading list that you created? Well, it's a list of books and articles. Uh, they pertain to the history and the lead up to uh, fighting both in 2014 and to this year, 2022. Uh, between Russia and Ukraine. It discusses 
this realistic analysis of the geopolitics of it. It discusses Putin's own personal background and history. It discusses classical liberalism, the classical liberal, liberal political movements in both Ukraine and Russia, uh, and particularly in Russia, two various important points uh, after the uh, February 1917 revolution and then during the Gaidar years, uh, Gaidar and Yeltsin years, uh, was uh, when decommunization was going on. The classical liberals were very important, but they didn't succeed. And so some of that's in there. And there's some cultural things about Turgenev and uh, a variety of uh, Dostoevsky on sort of the opposite literary pole and cultural pole. So there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. What did Russia, uh, what, what, how did the Tatars, the Mongols, how did that affect? Uh, what about the Cossacks? How did that affect Ukraine and so forth? So there's a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Civilizational material in here, as well as strategic things. So I invite. Yeah, definitely invite people and, to go to independent. The, the, the annotations are a good guide as to what you're going to find in the book or article. And you can just even learn a lot from just reading the annotations without getting into the book or the article. So I do invite people to go to our website, independent.org. Under issues, you'll find recommended readings, very much worth consulting. Um, if you don't mind, gentlemen, I'm going to turn the page back to some domestic concerns. I invite Ivan uh, to stay with us. Um, uh, while I introduce our next guest who's going to join us, welcome to Jeffrey Tucker. Hey, Jeffrey. Well, it's nice to see you. Thank you. It's great to see you. Um, many people will recognize Jeffrey Tucker. He is the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute, a new research and think tank organization that's making quite an impact. You're the author of 10 books. Most recently, I guess, Liberty or Lockdown, thousands of articles. Um, and you have, what is it now, a daily column in the Epoch Times? I write for the Epoch Times every every day, which is, you know, something, something that's a real pleasure for me because I've always wanted to have some kind of relationship with the major newspaper. It's the fourth largest. And uh, so they've never censored me. I write there every single day about basically whatever I want to. So, so it's, a, it's a good life. So one of the things you wrote about was this amazing story regarding PayPal. I'm just going to show people. We've reposted the article to our website, independent.org. Uh, the PayPal fiasco was no accident. Uh, you can find some more details from Jeffrey Tucker there. But the thing is, Jeffrey, I was just stunned. I mean, t tell me if I've got this right or wrong, but a, am I right that, that PayPal announced a policy change whereby it's users who used the site to do payment transactions were put on notice that they would be subject to a fine if those users put out misinformation on other social media platforms outside of PayPal, they're going to get, they were going to get fined $2,500. Is that what PayPal has told people? They got that yeah, right. We know that. Well, yeah, we know that big tech, they all, all these guys work together. Once you get blackballed by one, it's just a matter of time before others come after you, too. So, you know, if you're running even a Substack sub and posting on your Facebook, uh, Facebook account, Zuckerberg doesn't like it, you can get dinged there. And then LinkedIn is going to go after you. And then, uh, and then uh, who knows? You know, there's, there's then, then Twitter. 
you know, uh, and then they start coming after your money, right? And that's yeah, because this was rising our, it to a whole, raising it to a whole new level of punishment. Yeah, it, well, we saw um, it with so the Canadian is, truckers. We saw the same thing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, it's not clear. And I, I think this is fascinating how all this could sort of happen, because since I wrote that article, I've gotten a lot of communications from, from people who have had their accounts at PayPal deleted over the course of over the course of four years. So my guess is that when this uh, announcement came out and actually it wasn't an announcement, it was just a release of a new uh, um, acceptable use policy. Oh, right. Um, uh, and it, it was more, more or less a codification of, of what they were already doing. So they didn't expect any controversy from it. I think, forget now who, Daily Wire, I guess, or somebody picked it up first. Just going through the AU, the AUS, acceptable use policy, AUP, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, um, and found this little remark about disinformation. And uh, highlighted in the National Review ran with the story, and then the Epoch went with it, and I wrote an article, and it became a big deal. And then it was fascinating because people started deleting their accounts. And we don't know what went on on the inside, but my guess is that, you know, people who had held a lot of money there started thinking, wow, they, we got some real tax farming going on here. We better pull down my, my, uh, my, my money, which might have led to some people with a digital bank run. In any case, the stock was hit really hard. And uh, from January to, to the present, the this, this stock's down about 50, 56%. So there's every indication this is, how should I say, a harmful policy. But what's fascinating, and I, you know, we can go to Chapter 2 here, is that uh, after the dust settled over the course of 24 hours, right. it turned out that the, the, the new acceptable use policy uh, uh, in, includes a remark that uh, that if you are intolerant in ways that lead to discrimination, they can do the same thing to you. So, you know, I don't know that I said today that that seems to me just a rewording of the same policy. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> so they, right. They have every intention of doing this. And, you know, this really speaks to, I think it's a big problem we have at our time, which is that these, these private companies, you know, have two clients we're dealing with. One is their customers and stockholders on one hand. So they're like market actors. On the other hand, they got the, the the regulators, and I guess, for, for lack of a better term, it's sort of a ruling class, and uh, they they're toggling between both. Their interests don't always line up. Mm-hmm. So this this is a major problem, and it's a problem for for all these companies. Also, what struck me is just astonishing. Oh, go it's ahead, Bill. Interesting. Thank you. It's also interesting that in California. We have uh, bills that have advanced and been signed by Governor Newsom along the same lines about disinformation or wrong wrong information, saying that doctors who put out things that are considered wrong uh, are going to be attacked by the state government. I mean, this is there's plenty of disagreement in the field of medicine without getting into the details of the different arguments about COVID-19. There are plenty of disagreements among doctors. And to have a kind of overt political regime in medicine can't be healthy for competitive pressure for the best health treatment. Right. So the bigger picture is exactly this. I mean, I grew up in a world where censorship was, you know, something that you would never do. The left and the right all agreed on that. We were all against censorship. And it was something that 
you know, even growing up, you know, even, you know, at the height of my education, I thought, I can't believe anybody ever censored anything. I mean, it's just, that's just really brutal and primitive. We'll never do that. But now, you know, it seems it's so common and it's not so easy to say, oh, it's a private company, therefore it's not censored. No, these are, you know, well, in some sense, uh, these companies or the digital versions of the public accommodations, whether you recognize the legitimacy of that or not, they they are serving you know uh, the 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 government in many ways i mean we know from our history of the emails of this whole thing when the pandemic broke out they all signed up and said oh let us let us do what we can you know let us block misinformation well you know you combine that with just the essential nature of these services that we're using all the dominant market players are now serving uh, the regulate regulators you know how far are we away from something like a, a China social credit system where you know, your access to essential services and even your right to, to associate or speak or anything else uh, becomes truly or make a living or keep your money becomes right. Contingent. Keep your money. That's what the PayPal thing was about. Just simply keeping your money. Yeah. And, you know, it's fascinating. I, you know, and, and by the way, one of the world's great experts on the history of tax, tax farming is on this call. And that's, that's Bill Evers. And he's a world expert on tax farming. But there's not many people who know that much about subject of Bill does. Um, I've been reading up on it. So, so back in the ancient world, it was very common for the government not to attempt to collect taxes itself. What it did is it provided sort of bounties. Uh, there were lotteries and you'd say, well, I want to collect taxes. I want to collect taxes. And then you know, you, 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 you try it out and you show up back at the palace with a sack of gold and they flip a few coins in your direction. That's where you make money. But it's a kind of a profession as a tax farmer. After the Enlightenment, this was considered really uh, tremendously brutal because, you know, the tactics that the tax farmers would use to collect their, uh, the, their, their taxes for the, for the public good were sometimes uh, unseemly. Um, and so that practice of tax farming went away. Uh, but, you know, on February 27th, 2020, the New York Times said we really need to go medieval on this, this coronavirus. And that brought a whole ba- a bunch of medieval wow. practices uh, <laughs> back. And, <laughs> and one of which I wonder is a kind of a tax farming now. So you've got these private companies dinging you um, if they disagree, disagree with you and taking your money. It, it feels like taxation. Um, so they said that, the, that you'd get charged twenty five hundred dollars if you were found to be spreading misinformation. Um, what was misinformation exactly? I mean, it's like saying that there was no Holocaust. Uh, so they never said what misinformation is. And this is, of course, the way authoritarian governments work. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't want strict rule of law. That's why that's why liberalism is always celebrated rule of law. So, you know, the rules right. are what they are. It's and then specified. you comply with them. Right. And, and we're all good. Right. But if but if you have a vague rule like no mis- misinformation, now you've got the opportunity to apply it ar- arbitrarily and you create terror in the population. And this has been going on now for two years. You have people all the time on Twitter going, I don't understand it. How come I got banned? Whereas this other guy who says things far more outrageous does not get banned. Okay, well that's the point, right? It's arbitrary enforcement. Mm-hmm. So, so you really don't know what the rules are. You don't know what the rules are on YouTube. We can get a video taken down, and and nobody's explaining anything to you. And what it does is it creates a general sort of obsequious attitude right. towards <laughs> the state or within mm-hmm. the population. Like I, whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to stay out of trouble. Um, and, and we see these people, you know, being hurt all the time. And then we're just like, well, fortunately that didn't happen to me. I better, I better mind my P's and Q's. Right. Keep keep my mouth shut on things that the, the ruling people don't want me to talk about. 
My That's thinking, right. And my thinking you, is that with regard compliant. to independent institute broadcasts, I better wear a bow tie. Oh, yeah. Now that we got the bow tie is a new standard. <laughs> well, That's right. You better have some compliance um, here. You know, there's, there's another go, factor here, dress too. Code, and I, dress code. Uh, yeah, right. So, Grandma, the, the thing is that in March of this year, the Biden administration released a executive order calling for uh, study and implementation of a, of a central bank digital currency. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is pretty clearly what they regard as being the next round of monetary, great monetary reform, right? Which, you know, and everybody's looking at the dollar going, well, that's no good. Look, at my groceries keep going up in price. No problem. We've got a solution here. Um, we're going to have a private blockchain system as we run by the federal, federal government and, and uh, all the banks are going to be on it. And it enables them to track all of your spending you know, uh, uh, you know whether you're, you're you're buying a pack of cigarettes at the store or a house, they'll be able to figure it figure it out and and correlate that with your with your tax bills and also your social credit history Ugh. and notify all the relevant parties. So yeah, it's all very weird. I mean, like, you know, um, for all this to be happening at the same time. So therefore, I'm suggesting that maybe. Uh, this little uh, snafu by PayPal was just a, a, a first test uh-huh. to see how the population would react to that. And I'm just glad somebody found it. Yeah, and react. Have, yeah, have, have responded to it. The thing is, I, I, I get worried, too, when people say, well, that was a great victory. We really beat them down with that. But, well, maybe, maybe. Um, but, uh, you know, we might have won that battle, but there are many more ahead. And it's not obvious to me. Who's going to come out on on top in this whole thing? And you shouldn't have to have a viral Twitter campaign to get back your money and your and, no. your, and your free speech rights. That's no, not, you, you that really shouldn't. Happen. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the things are getting a little confusing on that score. Um, I'm glad we have a watchdog with the Brownstone Institute and Jeffrey Tucker, but we all need to be paying attention to these things. Um, you know, a related matter. I'm just changing the subject slightly, but I'm afraid it's more or less the same theme. Uh, it's, it's hard not to notice some of these things that uh, Vice President Kamala Harris comes out with publicly, where she she seems to be very much a kind of a, a spokesperson for whatever the reigning thought or doctrine doctrinal position is these days. So uh, on September 30th, uh, she was being interviewed about the aftermath of Hurricane Ian in Florida, uh, and they were talking about, you know, funds being given to help those who are trying to recover and so forth. And and here's what uh, Vice President Harris said. It is our lowest income communities and communities of color that are most impacted by these extreme conditions and impacted by issues that are not of their own making. And so we have to address this in a way that is about giving resources based on equity, understanding that we fight for equality, but we also need to fight for equity, understanding not everyone starts out in the same place. And if we want people to be in an equal place, Sometimes we have to take into account those disparities. Well, that sounds pretty much like gobbledygook, but when you look at it carefully, there's a common thread there that if you're going to hand out help after the hurricane, some people are going to get it before others so that in the end, everybody can come out equal. Now, this sounds like some kind of a weird yeah, right. racial favoritism to me, isn't it? Right, it's anti anti liberal and against the idea of universal rights. I mean, you make you make your everything a privilege, and it's all contingent upon identity, 
politics, identitarianism of the left in this case. The right dabbled with this stuff in the old days. Nowadays, it's the left that's mm -hmm. the main practitioner of it. So, uh, but it's so, highly divisive so, and very dangerous. So it's interesting. Uh, Harris's defenders. So I'm speaking here of the New York Times and the Associated Press, and there may have been others that I didn't see, say, no, 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 you misunderstood. This was all part of a large question. She really meant to not say that we'd have race-based re hurricane relief. She meant to say that in all government spending relating to anything pertaining to the environment, we should have race-based spending. So it's not just so it was much hurricane. worse than it seemed. It's everything. It's <laughs> the so-called environmental justice, which means race-based spending with regard to anything that somehow is deemed to be related to the environment. So I, I'm not really sure that that's a very strong defense of Harris, but uh, it's interesting what the people who are defending her think is a defense. I uh, know. Uh, the, the institutionalization of woke ideology has happened at such a ferocious pace. I mean, it just has taken uh, really what seems like just a few years to go from stunning from uh, the, the bowels of the academy to be institutionalized in the military and all the government regulators, and now with all the top investment firms and all the top corporations yep. and so on mm -hmm. and so on. It's 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 just a a virus, so to speak. Um, uh, that's crawling through every institution, and most Americans are unaware of it. Uh, but but it's impacting all of our lives in this grim way with these sort of strange public-private partnerships, all designed to mm -hmm. sort of con contort and distort uh, society, so that we don't just have plain old freedom anymore. No, we're all being directed towards some end as designed by this by the central planners according to their vision, which mm -hmm. we may or may not understand. Who cares? Just comply. I mean, this is this is this is uh, the way American life is, and 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 I, you know, I mean, this is all new to me. I, I guess, I vaguely began to understand this was happening uh, maybe 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 five years ago or something. But but it has swept through uh, the the uh, political culture so quickly. So there's an interesting anomaly here, and that is the yeshiva schools, the Jewish schools in New York City and also what's happening to Yeshiva University, but let's just concentrate on the schools. So the New York Times front page has a story, and this goes back some weeks, that the New York City school system and New York State are deeming that these Jewish schools don't provide the standard curriculum that public schools do in New York State but they're getting some government money to educate the kids. So here is a case where you have a particular cultural identity, but instead of celebrating them and saying, oh, they're on some different path, the state, the central planners, as Jeff was saying, are saying, no, no, conform to some anti-clerical model of life uh, it's not that the public schools are working very well in New York City. It's not that if you compare across incomes for the many, many people in these two schools are not well-to-do. There are some poor people in them, poor families. Uh, it's not that somehow those kids are 
doing worse in the Jewish schools than they are in the secularistic public schools. It's just they're different. And this is a group where they don't like the identity and they're stamping it out. So it's, we live in a strange time. You know, the central planners have some different ideas depending <clears throat> on the group that they're making their favorites. That is really true. And just one quick comment on that. You know, during the pandemic response, this whole sort of thing was, was challenged because there were many uh, particularly religious groups in this country that were not going along with it at all. Right. Uh, Orthodox Jews in New York were had nothing to do with the Amish said, this is dumb. Uh, many uh, break off Mormon sects said, oh, I'm not going to I'm not going to do this. And you can and then you had the, the dissenters from the vaccine and so on. Well, after that happened, and of course, their, their disease outcomes uh, were no better or worse than anybody else's, right? So, um, but after that, you had this kind of, this movement to just swear this can never happen again. We want one plan for everybody, and, and the Hasidim in particular are going to be targeted, right. as they were during the pandemic, they're mm -hmm. going to be targeted mm -hmm. in the future for, for their whole way of life. For yep. for their for their 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 willingness to comply, it's it's a very dangerous time for religious minorities. And the the, the Orthodox or ultra Orthodox Jews are not trying to educate their children to participate in the regular society and the you know commercial industrial. I don't want them to starve to death, but they're trying to educate them to be religious people of good character. And that is their main goal. Now, you know, the city actually did a report that was earlier and quite different from the state report. The city said, hey, they're teaching them math. They're teaching them some English, some history and geography and science and so forth. And they're in general, you know, covering some of the same territory. Also in their Jewish studies, they learn a lot of different skills. It's not just Jewish language or Jewish culture, but there's ancillary aspects of that that pertain to general knowledge. So it's not like these kids can't be successful in life, that they're, you know, their parents don't want them to be like, you know, everyday <laughs> man on the street. They want them to be different but they don't want them to starve to death. They want them to be able to support themselves. So this is just meddling. It seems I'm, that in I'm all, all... I'm sympathetic that people should learn more math and more English. And well, stuff sure, like yeah. But, you yeah. know, whose child is it? Is it the parents or is it the government's child? It seems like in so many of these cases, what we have is that there's the deploying of means of control uh, toward ends that, you know, I guess one could argue about uh, equality or, you know, a certain kind of education or socialization or democratic citizenship capacities and so forth. One could argue about those various ends. But what's really worrisome is that the means necessary to achieve those ends involve a high degree of supervision and control. And people seem to be so quick to overlook the cost of that kind of supervision uh, and of these means to those noble ends. Like, for instance, looking at Kamala Harris's remark about uh, race-based hurricane relief, a lot of people might say, well, yeah, those who are the most worst off, you know, they should get more help than those who are. So, so people might react sort of sympathetically, but then failing to see that to achieve that requires the use of uh, 
targeting measures and filters and screens that will be incredibly invidious and uh, really onerous. Uh, we have to face up to the cost think, in implementation. I almost think you're being too kind, Graham. Because <laughs> well, I try to veil, be. <laughs> the veil was ripped off progressivism by the recorded remarks of the left progressive people on the Los Angeles City Council. Oh, boy. So okay, tell us about that, Bill. Redistricting. <laughs> they were discussing gerrymandering. They were discussing where big assets like stadiums and uh, airports and things like that, whose district they would go into so that politicians could be giving out jobs and peddle influence and so forth. They were discussing all this. And suddenly they're engaged in not only, you know, ra racial block maneuvering about who, what race is going to get what treats and so forth, but they're casting a spurs in on people. So these were Latinos, basically Latinos, three city count left, left wing city council people and the leader of all labor unions in Los Angeles. And they're using, I mean, we, this is a kind of family program. I don't want to really get into the slurs that were being used, but they were pretty ugly. And they were even, you know, slurring one one city council member not in the conversation is homosexual gay and they were mocking him they were mocking his black child and all this ugly ugly stuff so underneath this oh we're just trying to help various races that have not done as well as they might is power and manipulation and the lowest form of machiavellian maneuvering and this is what we saw when we saw the private language of this. this you can see what the private, unexpected to be revealed language of these progressive politicians is in well, reality. Well, so, okay, they're, so they're hypocrites. Um, and so maybe a lot of people on the right are hypocrites, no, I'm too. I'm not saying they're but, hypocrites. They really believe what they said in this private conversation. Right. And the rest is just a smokescreen. Right. Mm -hmm. But what I'm thinking, though, as I'm listening to this, is that that, that, that it's a form of hypocrisy and, and others are hypocritical, too. But the, the real problem isn't so much that these are bad people, although apparently they really are, but that they have at their disposal uh, the ability to right. dispense goodies and favors. Like, why do these people right. have the power to do these things in the first place? Big That's the question in my mind. Yeah, it's be yeah because the government is the is captured as the dispenser of goods and services and rewards and punishments. Uh, if the government wasn't available to do that, then their bad character they could be privately bad people, but there wouldn't be the the means of uh, of uh, misusing it through the power of the state. Good grief! So it's interesting. Graham, I totally I totally agree with that, and this is a message that Republicans, if in fact they're going to take. Uh, there's going to be a red wave and they take control. I mean, they, but if they don't like these policies, they need to recognize something. Right. It's not good enough just to change the policy. Is that? Yeah. Uh, um, you you have to really start dismantling. We need to get serious about this. We need to start dismantling the machinery right. that has been built up uh, around to dispense and advocate for and lobby for this policy and benefit from it. Mm -hmm. uh, there, have to get, there has to be a major effort on 
to, to tear apart the administrative state, not just federal level, but in all the states yeah. and localities mm-hmm. and everything else. Especially otherwise, California. <laughs> yeah, otherwise the Republicans are just going to squander, as they always have, squander a chance to, to make lasting reform. So it's yeah, interesting very well put. that Liz Truss, who's the new prime minister in Great Britain, has made a modest effort to try to cut back the state, at least she's proclaimed this as her program. And the entire establishment, both business, political, and journalist, has just had a fit. And they've tried to bring down her government and reverse her policies. It's almost unbelievable. A very interesting, uh, two very interesting articles. One uh, was the idea that, uh, this was in the Wall Street Journal, the idea that there's a kind of a ratchet effect in government. This is the kind of thing that uh, Robert Higgs, who's long been associated with the Independent Institute, has written. And so there's this ratchet effect, and government grows over time, especially in crises and self-proclaimed emergencies. And then if you propose rolling that back, everybody comes down on you. Every politician, every bureaucrat, every company that's been benefiting from the status quo, every journalist who's buying into the ideology of this. And that's what Liz Truss has seen. It's really obnoxious and, you know, much much (laughs) involves portraying her as if she were some sort of total laissez-faire, monster. Friedrich Hayek monster. When she's Friedrich not monster. even. I mean, if only she well, were. She's more moderate than that. Right. But the point is, she has some, she, she sincerely sees herself, I think, in the tradition of Margaret Thatcher, again, who wasn't perfect, but did try to roll back big government in Britain. Yep. And so the program they, that Jeff they, is saying that the government needs to take, mm-hmm. it's not going to be a bed of roses to uh, to try to push this back. It's going to be an arduous struggle. The uh, television, the British comedy t- a series called Yes Minister, I think was made in yes. the, yeah. written and made in the 1980s. I'm not entirely sure, but, you know, four years later, it's far worse. Oh, than yeah, exactly. Right. So right. have a look at that. So this is the other thing, it's something I've been emphasizing recently. Uh, one of the problems with Trump when he got into office is he thought he was going to be CEO of the government and the country and everybody would comply with him and you know, everything would be fine. He didn't understand right. the whole machinery right. out there that he couldn't control that believes themselves, like in Yes Minister, to be the real government. Right. And the elected politicians are just the fake people who show up and, and for, for a theater from time to time and, <laughs> and then go away. The, 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 <laughs> the new, coming, new, new administration is the Christmas help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's the way they look at it. So you know, here's the thing that the, these incoming uh, 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 people with the so-called red wave need to be desperately educated. And I don't know. There could be some programs that set, set them down and explain to them what's really going on and how the civil service works. Who you know how they have the institutional knowledge, what they can expect from the media which has a very close relationship with the administrative state and, and big business. You know, they need to be aware of the problems they're going to face and the consequences of taking it on and then just be urged to tell them that if you want to save civilization, this is what you got to do, right? I mean, they're going to be our, they're going to be our new leadership, all right? 
lead us back into the light and out of this emerging darkness as soon as possible. But be aware of what you're faced with. I think um, uh, last so, last so, subject. Oh, go ahead, Bill. Then we'll turn the page. All, all I wanted to say was there's different kinds of Republicans. And I think if you think back to the old Everett Dirksen kind of Republican, and then you think to the Ronald Reagan, Goldwater type Republican, and then you think to the Tea Party, which is kind of extra party, but still it's mostly Republicans. And then you think of the Trump people. There's increased awareness of the administrative state. There's increased skepticism of ideological pandering by the news media. So even if they don't have as much experience, the newcomers don't have as much experience as they might, even though they might have not have the depth of knowledge that it would be would be more helpful. They have a pretty good baloney detector that may help them withstand this horrible pressure they're going to be under. Um, we have a few minutes left. I wanted to just change the t subject briefly, especially because we have the pleasure of having uh, Jeff Tucker with us. But uh, this is the time of year when we all should be, I guess, celebrating the conferral of uh, Nobel Prizes, right? So the Nobel Prize in Economics was just awarded. Um, Jeffrey Tucker wrote a piece warning us that actually this is a, a form of moral hazard was, was, was characterizing the Nobel awarding. What did you mean by that, Jeff? Well, into, well, moral hazard is, is, is the actions you undertake that actually end up rewarding, thereby encouraging and perpetuating the very thing you're trying to oppose. Right. And, and, so, and so the idea of moral hazard in this case applies at two levels. On one hand, it was Bernanke who created the the impression from his uh, actions back in Q. So it's a one, former two, three, chair of the Federal Reserve who just got awarded the Nobel Prize, Ben Bernanke. Just FYI, right? Okay. Right. So so Bernanke, you know, undertook this sort of sort of quantitative easing, which was you know, which is to um, uh, uh, <clears throat> monetary expansion as social distancing is to uh, force human separation. Right. It's just a euphemism. Uh, but the thing is that after 2008, we didn't see a lot of macroeconomic consequences to that, to that credit expansion that he undertook. And it taught a whole generation of central bankers, eh, whatever, I guess we're, we, you know, we're, we're magic and, and brilliant after all, we can do this forever. So when 2020 came, you know, the Fed eventually over the course of 18 months unleashed uh, $6.3 trillion in hot money on the streets. And now uh, you can't afford to buy beef roast at the store anymore. So, the, you know, and, and I guess the second level in which the moral hazard exists is that if you give prizes to people like this, <laughs> you're only going to per perpetuate right. this kind of bad behavior. This is how you so get rewarded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I ask you a question. How come they had the, uh, how come the last, you know, in 2007 to 2009, they flooded them uh System with money. How come that didn't cause inflation, but now it's causing it now? Yeah. So this is a great. This is really a great question, and I think it's really intriguing. It's it's a simple answer though. In two thousand seven, two thousand eight, they put all the the new money in cold storage. It just they just recapitalized the banks, and Bernanke came up with this great trick where he said to the central bank, "Let's pay higher than a market rate for their deposits, and that way 
It'll never be unleashed on the streets, and you know that'll be it. So just sat there in cold storage, and we were watching the, the you know the uh, effective money, money supply actually you know decline weirdly because all the banks were dumping their deposits in the central bank, earning the big bucks more so than they would by lending it out. You see what I mean? Very clever. Well, <laughs> 2020 came along and said, let's do what Bernanke did. Well, they did the first part. They didn't do the second part. Instead, they fired up the helicopters and just dropped <laughs> the money all over the country. In fact, directly into the bank accounts of, of businesses and individuals, right. much to the shock of virtually everybody, which converted you know, when money that once was in cold storage to, to becoming really hot on the streets driving inflation, as Milton Friedman predicted, eight, 10 months later. So it was just dumb and outrageous and could totally an affirmation of everything that the quantity theory of money said. I mean, it just worked like, it was like clockwork how quickly it all happened. They somehow didn't expect them. They're like, oh, no, we got inflation. What do we do? Well, how about let's bring about recession? (laughs) It's getting getting pretty grim out there. The failure of the experts is the theme of the age. I'll say, isn't it, though? Wow. Okay, we're going to draw to a close in a minute here, but I want to turn back to Ivan. Uh, We began with you talking about the Ukraine crisis, Ivan. Um, Do you have any words of wisdom for our policymakers or predictions for those of us sitting on the sidelines, chewing our fingernails, worrying about this? What do you you recommend and what do you foresee over the next few weeks? Well, I think if we can get out of this with some sort of a settlement, well, of course, it would be good to have a total reevaluation of U.S. policy, given the fact that NATO expansion is is a root cause of this, I think, but that we don't have uh, that type of introspection in the United States because we have uh, neoconservatives on the one side and liberal interventionists on the other side, which kind of just, you know, blend into one. They're and all so pushing in the same never direction. Go back and and we're, un- we're nationalistic enough that we can never go back and say, like, unless we have a catastrophe like Iraq or, well, Afghanistan, Afghanistan or Vietnam, right. you know, when our own soldiers are dying and that sort of thing, uh, then we then we sort of take stock for a while, like the Vietnam uh, War caused the Vietnam Syndrome during the uh, Carter and, uh, well, the Ford and the Carter administration. But then in the Reagan administration, they started ramping up the invasions or interventions again. And, and then Reagan uh, was at a fair uh, medium level. And then they kicked it up, kicked up, kicked it up a notch with the first Iraq war during the Bush administration. And then Clinton went to town on a lot of little interventions. And, you know, mm-hmm. we went on, the rest is clear. But, but so we have these periods where we have a, total catastrophe, but it never seems to dawn on us that we really can't afford to do this anymore. We already have more than uh, $30 trillion in debt. And, you know, we really need to rethink what we're doing and, uh, you know, perhaps have a big powwow after this is all over and say the great powers, you know, why don't, if we're going to do these, uh, you know, uh, if we're realists, we may each police our own region and call it a day. And even in the uh, in our own region, we need to be more benevolent than we have been in the past. So we need a strategic. In other words, if you don't want to do that, have a strategic reevaluation. And maybe mm-hmm. if Putin gets overthrown or something, then you have an excuse where you could um, uh, 
have a more moderate policy toward Russia. But, you know, if they throw them out, they're probably going to throw them out with the hardliners and make it worse. I was going to say, yeah. Worse. So mm-hmm. you never know. So I, right. the short answer is I'm not, you know, this is not a good situation, but it is for the Ukrainians, I guess, but in, you know, the Ukrainian military, not the Ukrainian society, because right. they're getting their, their whole country destroyed. So I don't want to say it's good for Ukraine, but um, certainly it's better for Ukraine that they push the Russians, you know, past their borders. Uh, but then you have to, but the two countries are going to have to live together and the United States uh, I hope they don't. There's some hawks in the U.S. that, well, we shouldn't put them into NATO right away. And I'm going that, you know, that got us into trouble in the first place. That's mm-hmm. one of the reasons that Putin did this, I think. So, you know, it's uh, um, I just think we our whole foreign policy, we need a global uh, idea. That's what my new book is, or my, my book in, that's in the in the pipeline now. Uh, on U.S. defense policy says, you know, we really have to evaluate our role in the world and whether we're going to try to fight these two countries at the same time or not fight them, but certainly contain them and that sort of thing. Or or should we have a more limited view uh, because of our superior geography and inherently fabulous uh, intrinsic security that we can, you know, maybe not, maybe let the Europeans and the Japanese and the Australians and some of the other rich countries do some of this uh, policing if it needs to be done. I predict that if the Republican Party uh, gains one or both houses of Congress in a couple of weeks, uh, that these kind of military strategy discussions might actually become very ripe again. If they don't, the Democratic Party retains its control of all three, uh, both houses and the, the presidency. I doubt that the, the kind of considerations that you're talking about, Ivan, will be on the table. But if the Republicans win, they're they're pretty divided, actually. And there could actually be an yes, interesting well, discussion. They are, yes, you have the hawkish that run right. yeah. other ones like Rand Paul, who are less right. uh, enthusiastic about it. So there is, but there's also a strain of non-intervention. Democrat Party. Yeah. And mm-hmm. has, it has been fairly strong, probably stronger than the Republican Party until probably the last five or six years when I think the Republican Party has equal to it or, or greater uh, or passed it up. So, right. uh, you know, it's not a part, it's not really a partisan issue as much. Not really, as no. It's the, it's the hawks versus the more restrained people. Right. I, I want mean, to the, raise the, the, a couple of I want to raise a couple of red flags here. One is the temptation that may come as atrocities grow by the government in Iran against the people. So, you know, so far the United States has stayed out of that, but the temptation is strong as Ivan has written. And secondly, the other prong of what Tom Friedman was writing about when he said that the U.S. is fighting Russia and China is that with regard to China, he wasn't just talking about the threats to Taiwan's uh, autonomy. He was talking about the U.S. saying that it would never allow the Chinese semiconductor industry to grow to the skill and proficiency and expertise of the U.S. So we were going to be at war to prevent China from being a success in the semiconductor field. This is a kind of a new expansion of war that's 
potentially it's, it's very obscure as to how it's going to play out. But this is a very major declaration by the United States that it's not it's going kind to allow the success yeah. of another country. Mer- very well, mercantilist, I, I but also... Some, I have some experience of working at the, uh, uh, at the Pentagon and other agencies with export controls. Uh, and it's, it's almost better to, instead of the, because we had a lot of export controls against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. But the more I got into it, the more I thought, you know, these export controls in, impede our own uh, industry and our own technolo- technological growth because people interacting with other people and, you know, exporting products and stuff naturally increases the technology. So I came to the conclusion when I worked in the government that they ought to, you know, they ought to just take off most of the controls, except maybe on nuclear stuff or, you know, like that, and just try to outcompete the other countries, because I think the U.S., uh, a lot of other countries have a lot more regulations than even we do here. So I think, you know, uh, you, ha- you might have to guard against industrial espionage because everybody wants to steal your stuff. But uh, that's a private that can be a private decision of the company saying, you know, we we've got to have good security because we don't this uh, these uh, technologies are our bread and butter. You know, we make money off this. So I think that kind of a system should work. You should just stay ahead of them uh, in the market um, and not over control it because these these controlled government controls bleed into the private sector and it inhibits our own technological advancement. Mm hmm. Well, listen, we've covered a lot of territory today. I think we need to adjourn uh, with thanks to all three of you for your expertise. I'm especially grateful for Jeffrey Tucker joining us. Um, as a reminder, Jeffrey is with the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org, I believe, if I've got that right, Jeffrey. Uh, invite you all to visit him there. Also, of course, we always invite you to turn to the Independent Institute. Our website is independent.org. Uh, we have a lot of great material of uh, deeply researched that is available through that website. You can find things from Ivan Eland and from Bill Everson, from many others on our website, independent.org. Um, any parting shot from you, Jeffrey? Didn't give you a chance for your parting shot a minute ago. Uh, no, uh, except that um, uh, uh, I will say that these are exceedingly dangerous times. And, and uh, I always go back to my, my mentor. I never met him. He died many years before I was old enough to meet him. Ludovic Misa said, every person must throw himself into the intellectual struggle when civilization is sweeping mm-hmm. into destruction. And um, I think that's what all of sincere believers in liberty, human freedom, and human rights need to do today. Well put. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to all of our friends who will be joining us watching this video. Um, And we'll look for you again in a couple of weeks on Independent Outlook from the Independent Institute here in California. Take care, everybody, and bye-bye.